Good morning, Gregory House, South and North. Um, let's do today uh, part two of our Theology of Holy Scripture. Um, picking up at the end, actually, of part one uh, from last week and then transitioning into part two. So let's pray and off we'll go. The Lord be with you. Holy Father, we come uh, in the strong, sure name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we ask that we be borne up into your bosom uh, where that eternal word has always been, and that you would open up your very life to us in Jesus Christ, that we would know you um, and, and continue to press into uh, his knowing of you and be transformed from one degree to the next uh, into his holy image. We pray that we would get a greater sense uh, as we press into our calling uh, of whose we are and therefore who we are, uh, that we would know um, the staggering reality that uh, we are accepted in the beloved as he is accepted in his acceptance uh, beloved in the way father that you love him because we're included in that love would you do that and would you um, strengthen us uh, for the work of the ministry would you remove any impediment any hindrance uh, to that end and would you be glorified uh, in us even as you make us holy and truly happy people in you. Do that, we pray uh, in Christ's holy name. Amen. Okay, uh, I'm right at the, the last part of part one here. Uh, we talked last time, right, getting some momentum. We talked about word of God, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where we always want to start. That's where, that's where theology always wants to start. That word and, and the relationship, the theological relationship between the word of God who is in the fullness of time incarnate and the word of God that is Holy Scripture, right? There's, there's a theological connection there that we want to play out so that in hearing the word and how we handle the word in, in, in Scripture, it speaks to um, who the incarnate word is, right? So we've talked about that. We'll talk about that again. We've laid groundwork for that. Then we talked about a theology of uh, word of God even prior to inscripturation, right? How the word of God came to patriarch and matriarch and what the continuity and discontinuity of that is with us and what we should expect even in, in our day in and day out hearing of the word of God. Uh, how that's different, how that's in so many ways the same. Then we talked about a theology of Holy Scripture and Holy Spirit and in point of fact, really what we talked about is the doctrine of word and spirit, right? That, that um, scripture is the substance, if you will, of the spirit, the, the lingua franca, the common tongue of the spirit. So we learn to identify the spirit's ministry and action relative to our handling of scripture. And then the spirit is the efficacy, the ongoing dynamacy and action uh, of holy scripture. Scripture is living and active precisely because of the Spirit's ongoing ministry. So that divine author and superintender of Scripture is the one who continues to um, <clears throat> make Scripture um, able to penetrate us, sort us out, right? do all of those things, acquaint us with the living God. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, and so let's go, through, let's go through and start right at the bottom of uh, that last section, so I'm on page five, that last point, point D, that's, that's where we started to end up last time. The Spirit doesn't convince us of Word of God, 
scripture, word of God, doesn't convince us by mystical experience, esoteric information, but by the searching, transforming power whereby scripture exhibits that it is indeed word of God. And so we talked about um, Hebrews 4, which, which is an incredible text, Hebrews 4 too. The word of God is living and active such that it plums our depths, right? It gets to those places in us, those shadowy, slippery places in our hearts that even we can't get to, right? No matter how insightful you are, no matter how intrepid you are in your own self-analysis, you can't get to those places, you just can't do it. And all of us, therefore, says, says scripture, are beholden to him, right? Him um, with whom we always have to do. I'm not speaking verbatim there, but that's the idea. In hearing that word that the, the author of the epistles is talking about, the, the word of the prophets and the law, in hearing apostolic kerygma, who we're really hearing is living, active Jesus Christ. We're really being acquainted with him. So I've got a couple of texts here. I just want you to get a feel for them and hear that. The one is First uh, Thessalonians 2.13. And if you look right at the first page of your notes there, up top here, I have that text. Because now this is going to start to transition us to a theology of Scripture in the church, but also a theology of hearing Scripture. When you received us, us at Gregory House this morning, when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us in the apostolic preaching, you accepted it, not as, word of, not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God which is at work in you believers, right? So part of having a, a theology of scripture is now for us to start to practice that art of hearing scripture in the really hard places of life, by the way, right? Our own Gethsemanes and our own Golgothas and our own wildernesses and hearing the word of God, not as, not even just as word of prophet and apostle, but as living active word of God. Paul says, that's what, that's what you did in Thessalonica and you're right to do that. Look at this, if you, if you have your scripture handy. Look at Ephesians 4, I want you to see something. Let me get there. Paul in Ephesians 4, talking to the Ephesians, your, your text probably says, your English translation probably says new life, that's the heading in Ephesians 4, 17. Listen to what he does here, and it speaks just to this the living voice of Jesus Christ active through the apostolic preaching. He says, now, this I say, and I testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. There's a wonderful piece of anthropology right there in epistemology. Not because their IQ is low, not because they're intellectually modest or deficient, not that, because of the hardness of their heart. It's really important. We'll get to that later. Hopefully we'll get to that later when we talk about a clarity of scripture. Because of their hardness of heart, their minds are darkened and they're slow to understand. They become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, says Paul. Assuming, verse 21, this is the one I really want you to see. Assuming that you have heard, in Greek, heard him. 
assuming that you've heard him. Your English translation here says, assuming that you've heard about him, right? That preposition's big because what it changes is, is the apostolic preaching the living, active presence of Jesus Christ with his church? Or is it just um, the occasion for the church to do an act of retrospection? Think about, you know, when Jesus Christ used to be here, right? When Jesus Christ um, in the gospels is never in Ephesus. Paul says, assuming, the assumption is, you have heard him, right? And you have, he says, he goes on to say, that you've been taught in him. It's important because he starts out in verse 17 saying, I'm testifying in the Lord and you're being taught in the Lord. All of this is happening in the presence of the Lord. That's a huge element of a theology of scripture. So what's going on is we're hearing the living voice of Jesus Christ who promises to be present in the church, right? So let's move on. Let's talk about listening and hearing. I'm still on part one, but I want to get this. And the connection between then going and declaring what that means for for us to really hear the word. Jesus says in John 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me, right? So that voice, it doesn't, you know, penetrate this kind of placid silence. There's no other voices on the horizon. My sheep hear my voice in this cacophonous din of a whole bunch of voices, right? External, internal, uh, all kinds of voices. My sheep learn to hear my voice, recognize my voice, so they don't follow the voice of strangers, but they follow mine, a bunch of, a whole other slew of voices and a whole bunch of other calls and callers. They hear mine, right? They do that. <clears throat> so what do we do? We learn to hear the word of God by, and that voice by listening, right? By, by, by the art of hearing, maybe we learn to listen. And as we learn to listen, then we learn to speak and act and think and so on and so forth. But as our Lord calls, it says, my sheep hear my voice. As he calls those early disciples to himself, he sends them and he, does, and he says, sends them with this promise. The one who hears you, hears me. It's pretty much what Paul just said in Ephesians, right? The one who hears you, hears me. It's not that they're hearing primarily you. It's that in and through you, what they're getting is my voice. And the one who rejects you rejects me. The one who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. Hearing word of God's this momentous act, right? But he sends out his disciples that way. Now, the question we want to think about is, is that true just for the first disciples or is it true for us? Because if it's just true for them and not us, that doesn't lend us a whole bunch of confidence to do the work of ministry, right? What, what it becomes then is not, you know, the Great Commission, go into all the world and I'll be with you. It's, you know, I'm retiring and I'm going to be Lord Emeritus. Now you go into the world and project your religious fantasy upon the world by your own wiles. That, that's a pretty crummy calling. My sheep hear my voice. I send them, right? They learn to, they learn to, um, to hear by listening. I send them out in their speaking and their acting. Who's being heard is me. This is the Great Commission, right? This is, this is how it all ends up. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Singular, unique soul. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, because I'm not a provincial deity, you can actually speak public truth to the world, right? Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and I will be with you even to the end of the age, right? The, the, 
presence of Jesus Christ. The question we want to get at and think about is, um, do we still hear that voice, right? Is that, is that a privilege of the first disciples? Or is that something that we should anticipate and expect in our ongoing hearing of Holy Scripture, our ongoing reading of Holy Scripture, that we're having a living encounter with the living Jesus Christ? Is the commission, ongoing commission, is it a, is it a, is it a commissioning or is it a great delegation instead, right, where the Lord says, I've done my work, I'm done, I'm going into semi-retirement. Now, you go and try it for, for a couple of millennia. You go and do that. Or is it our bringing forth the word into the world as we commission with the one who promises, right, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, and I'll never fall silent because it's my very nature to be the self-expression of God. And then in our own formation, the issue is, is our formation done in the presence of the God who speaks or is it a long act of retrospection? Does that make sense? Are, are we just being informed or are we actually being transformed and conformed in the presence of our Lord? Listen to the way Augustine speaks here, right at the bottom of that page. But for some, perhaps someone thinks that as he himself came not to us but sent, speaking of this very text, we have not heard his own voice, but only the voice of those whom he sent far from it. Let such a thought be banished from your hearts, for he himself was in those whom he sent. I testify in the Lord. You hear in the Lord. So Paul was saying, it is himself who speaks by his servants, and it is his voice that is heard in the one who sends, right? So what we want to start getting at is, what does it look like for the church to handle well Holy Scripture, proclaim Holy Scripture. What does it mean to do the work of evangelism and, and to actually um, be a people of the truth that speaks in, the, in this world? i just give you a couple here because they're so good. Luther, listen to this. Um, this treasure that's deposited in jars of earth and clay, right? The, the, the prospect of preaching or um, that God knows how to make light shine out of darkness, or that God, you know, uh, God in, the, in the, the foolishness of preaching shows himself to be wiser than the wisdom of men. Luther says, I preach the gospel. This is the miracle of preaching. I preach the gospel, and with my bodily voice, I bring Christ into your heart so that you may form him within yourself. How much the poor bodily voice is able to do First of all, it brings the whole Christ to the ears, and then it brings him into the hearts of all who listen and believe, right? The action of preaching is the action of, or done in the, in the, in the presence of Jesus Christ, and is that sacramental act where Jesus Christ makes his voice heard and makes himself present, apart from which, not very useful, right? And, apart, and if we don't get that, you know what preaching becomes. It becomes, um, boy. <laughs> it becomes addicted to methodology, right? If I, you know, give you a hook and a look and I do this and I make sure I raise and elevate my voice and I do all this because the issue is how do I get you to um, take this dead thing, which is the word of God, absence of the presence of Jesus Christ, and how can you come to new life and transformation of life by way of this dead thing? It's a pretty grim prospect, right? Luther says it's never what goes on in preaching. Let me give you one more, and then we'll stop for a minute. 
if you look over on the next page, look at, look at Bonhoeffer. Oh my gosh, such a, so wonderful. The sermon, he says, is both the riches and the poverty of the church. All he's, all he's doing is thinking about the way Paul says um, the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. It's the form of the present Christ to which we're bound and to which we must hold. If the complete Christ is not in the preaching, then the church is broken. If the complete Christ is not in the preaching, then the church can't be the body that draws her very life and existence from the head because the head is inactive. The head isn't present or alive. The church, therefore, is a dead thing, in fact. The relation between God's word and man's word and preaching is not that of mutual exclusion, but the human word of, or he says, the human word of preaching is not a phantom of the word of God. It's not, a, it's not a, uh, an empty thing, a vacuous thing. The human word is that vehicle by which and in, in and through the living voice of Jesus Christ is given. It's taking us right back to the incarnation, right? The humanity of Jesus isn't a phantom thing. The church and her humanity is in a phantom thing. The church is a divine human reality. The preaching of the gospel in the church is in a phantom thing. It's the action of Christ's presence. Rather, God's word has really entered into the hum humiliation of the words of men. Men's sermon is the word of God because God has freely bound himself and is bound to the words of men. One cannot point to this word of man without pointing to this man, Jesus, who is God. Part of the theological matrix we want to put together that is, you know, son and scripture, spirit and scripture, church and scripture. So as we have a theology of listening to scripture and handling scripture well, so that we're not, so that what we have isn't a wonderful record of when God used to speak a long time ago and has a long since fallen silent and now we're rehearsing these things with a dead book and then the church becomes something like a, the DuPage Historical Society, right? We're, 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 um, we're stewarding the teachings of Jesus and trying to keep alive the memory of Jesus. A, that's a grim prospect, right? Do you guys want to say anything there? Yeah, sure. Uh, at least uh, you probably have to grab that mic. I know. I'm just going to talk. Oh, here we go. There Can you, you go. speak to the distinction, if any, between hearing Christ in the preaching of the word versus when we just speak scripture to mm -hmm. our friends on a less formal level? Yep, yep. The, the principle is the same, right? The principle is the same. So it's in the preaching of the word. The word's first for the ear, right? It's always been historically, given that, you know, we, we tend to take as granted things like, you know, we all have copies of scripture. The ancients didn't, right? Prior to 1450 in the printing press, people didn't. The, the, the big initiative of the Reformation is one Bible in every church, right? So, so hearing the, the word of God is always a communal event, right? And it's always a, a, a proclamatory event. But now that we have Holy Scripture, we want to make sure that we're not pitting the Bible against the church, like lots of folks do, right? If I have the Bible, why do I need the church? 
But as you're hearing and listening and reading, this is how we want to approach scripture all the time, right? Your servant hears, now speak. And, and speak the lordly word that you wish to speak, right? And prune and pluck and pull up and plant and do all that deep work how you see fit according to your wisdom. But that is the, that's, that's the, 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 the theological discipleship practice that we want to inculcate, right? We betake ourselves to the word, never trying to lord over the word, right? But always hearing the word. Yeah, every, every time the word is, every time the word is um, given to those who receive in faith, that's what we can count on. Jesus Christ honors his word. Check this out, you guys. Now, part two, take up your notes on part two, if you will. I give you that text again from John 10. It's so wonderful. My sheep hear my voice. Luther says, right, the normative Christian action is to hear the voice. We live by hearing the voice. But then part of a theology then of hearing, I give you this quote from Helmut Thielica. I love Helmut Thielica. Check this out. It's so, it's so kind of apropos for, for us moderns. If we are to have serious dealings with God, it's essential that we be quiet, first of all, and do nothing but simply listen and let ourselves be questioned. When we do, we'll make the astonishing discovery that Christianity is not, as we supposed, an answer to our questions. Certainly not everyone, big ones, right? Uh, and questions that now open up other questions. But he says, on the contrary, it's Christianity that asks the serious questions and therefore teaches us what true questioning is. I, th I put that there because I think it's, it's a wonderful aspect of a theology of hearing. Moderns usually have God on the dock, if you haven't noticed. We read scripture with a real kind of cynical, suspicious um, posture. Well, what about, what about, what about? Telica says, this is the first part of discipleship with all due respect. Learn to shut up and listen, because that's really hard to do, right? And then learn what true questioning is and, and, and see that, and if you read the Gospels, you see this all the time, Jesus is the one asking the questions all the time, right? And he's getting a bunch of dodging all the time, um, but he's the one asking the questions. And then we'll learn what true questioning is, then we'll learn how to think and speak and act. Um, let's, let's push in now and talk about a theology of scripture relative to the church. And what I have up here, first of all, is is the church a creature or a creator of scripture or is the church a creature of scripture? So that's a, that's a big kind of reformational thing, right? And we are um, those who wish to be holy Catholic, right? Or Catholicity and holy evangelical heirs of the reformation and the, 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 that wonderful dual tradition of the church. This is a huge issue in the reformation. Is the church a creature of the word of God or is the church the creator of the word of God? Um, as, it, as it plays itself out in the Reformation, people would say, um, Rome would say, it is actually the church that designates scripture, that discerns the parameters of scripture, and therefore um, it is, you know, without the church, we wouldn't have scripture, that type of an idea. The reformers wanted to say something quite different, that the church actually recognizes scripture rather than determines scripture. Um, and it's not just a semantic thing, it's a big thing. That the church recognizes scripture um, and in so doing 
hears the word of God and learns actually who the church is and what the parameters of the church and so on and so forth is by way of recognition. For the latter, in other words, for, for Protestant evangelicals, designating scripture suggests, the Romish position, designating scripture suggests that the church is in fact actively, operatively speaking, the Lord of scripture rather than that blessed creature called into existence by scripture to be cheerfully, confidently beholden to scripture. Those go together, right? If you're not, if you're not called into being by scripture, by the living word of God, <laughs> let's explore this. I think we'll see this pretty easily. Being cheerfully, confidently beholden to scripture is a pretty hard thing to do. Pretty hard thing to do. Um, why do they think this is such a big deal in the 16th century? First of all, say something like, to the extent whenever Christians um, take a posture of lordship relative to scripture, we can't actually be reformed by scripture, right? We're not learning like Telicus has to um, be questioned and learn what true questioning is. We are doing quite the opposite to scripture. Um, what we'll find there is we'll, we'll have something like a Cartesian anxiety that'll creep up. We'll talk about that in just a few minutes. But that's a big deal, right? And then all the while, what happens, there's a confusion between the head and the body, right? Those aren't interchangeable. Jesus Christ being head and Lord is the one who speaks and teaches um, so that the body can in fact, in truth, be the body. But wherever there's that, you know, even if it's unintentional, that, that, that lording over the head, that exchange with the head, the church can never be really reformed because she can't actually hear with cheerful confidence the word of God. So it's a big deal in the Reformation. Now, let me ask you guys this. When the church speaks, and this is what we're getting, we're getting at the distinction between um, scripture and church and the relation. When the church speaks, does God speak always? Can the church speak like the devil? Right. Scripture is given to be the living, active exercise of the head over the church. Um, but the church can't take that headship. And, and if she does, what we'll often see, right, what will come with that is a, an inability to be reformed, but also a presumption that when the church speaks, God speaks. And we know that's often not the case. You can find that, right, historically, not in ways that are like of the essence of the church, but we'd see incredible abuses throughout the centuries, right? We, we could, we could, we could um, talk about those that are, you know, they're, they're geographically and chronologically specific. They're not of the nature of the church, but they're horrific. It's when the church actually speaks diabolically. And it wouldn't just be in the past and in other places. We could see that right now, right, where the church speaks like the devil, where she doesn't hear and give herself to word of God. She'll do that. One of the things that the Reformation wanted to say is, hey, we want to make sure that we get that distinction that, that um, the church has real authoritative ministry, but that authoritativeness isn't inherent when the church speaks, God speaks. It's not inherent. It's not even derivative, because that speaks of something like, you know, Jesus is the Lord Emeritus, and this is kind of a static thing. It's not even derivative. It's the church can, can be and do ministry in an authoritative way as she stewards well the living voice of Jesus Christ, right? Now, flip side of that, can the church speak infallibly? 
this weekend, now, okay, so this weekend, you guys are going to hear in confession the pronouncement that, the, that your sins are forgiven. Has it been given to the church to proclaim and pronounce the forgiveness of the sins? And would we have to get up from our knees agnostically and say, that was sweet, whoever does it, you know, whoever the celebrant is, or whoever, whoever, whoever the priest is this week. Um, that was sweet. Um, I hope it's true, but I'd have no, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't actually take that to the edge of the abyss of death, right? My sins are forgiven. I, can't, I couldn't say that with confidence because it was just a word of man here or something like that. Can the church speak an infallible word of God? What I'm, what I'm getting at is this, this connection of head and body. This is what Protestants often tend to do. That's the way Rome talks, right? Rome has a doctrine of infallibility. It's tied to an office, by the way, not necessarily to scripture. It's tied, it's tied to an office. And we know that people can't speak infallibly. Therefore, we know that, this, that the proclamation of Jesus Christ in the church, we could never have real confidence there. Protestants start to really unwind there. Does that make sense? Isn't it the case to, to steward well and proclaim Scripture, right? When, when we steward well Scripture, that we can speak a word of God. I don't mean every word that comes forth from the mouth of your preacher. That's not what I mean. I mean something like this. Jesus Christ is the lover of sinners, and he has come into the world to save sinners from their sin. And even while you were sinners, Christ died for you. If you will trust yourself to him, you can be utterly confident that you belong to Jesus Christ in life and in death. When, when you say that doesn't, um, is it possible that the church can speak infallibly? Um, it seems like, like my initial reaction was no, because if the church speaks an infallible word, it is the word of God. And it's, I kind of think of it more as that Dietrich Bonhoeffer idea of, of God joining himself to the words of, of humans and, and, and breathing life into them. And um, wouldn't we want to make that distinction rather than saying uh, that the church can speak infallibly? I'm sorry, I missed the last part. Uh, wouldn't we want to make the distinction that uh, God speaks through the church infallibly versus saying that the church can speak infallibly? Yeah, you could, God speaks infallibly through the church, right? Through the ministry of the church. And as the church is um, properly bound and testifying in the Lord, like Paul says, right? Testifying in the Lord. When we steward well the apostolic preaching, can we say a true word? That's, that's my point. But that's really important, isn't it? Your sins are forgiven. Or how about this? X, Y, and Z that goes on in the world, this is evil. Can the church actually say that? This, conversely, is commendable. This is what it looks like to walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what it does. It. This is what it means for your sins to be for exercising the keys of the kingdom, right? This is what it means for your sins to be forgiven. This is what it means to be in, 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 um, in peril of dying in your sins. That's a, that's a ministry of truth and love to the world and to the church, right? So we can even distinguish the parameters of the church. Those are all aspects of the Reformation, right? To, to um, think well about the relationship, the theological relationship between the church and Holy Scripture, so that the church is always creator, or I'm sorry, not, that the church is creature and faithful custodian 
right? Always cherishing and contending that word given to the saints, but never trying to lord over that word. I want to get back at that in just a minute, but I want you guys to see something. Look at John, if you will, John's gospel in chapter 15. You just see something really cool here. What you see with our Lord right away is um, him calling a people to himself, right? So he never wishes to be apart from his church. With the incarnate ministry of Jesus Christ, you see the Lord calling a people to himself. Now in the upper room discourse, Jesus says, John 15, pick up in verse 26 here. He says, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. He'll come in my name, as we saw in, in uh, chapter 14 last week. He'll bear witness about me. And you also, in the Spirit, will bear witness about me because you have been with me from the beginning, right? I've called you to myself. I never wish to be known apart from apostolic ministry and apostolic proclamation. You've been with me from the beginning. The Spirit's ministry is going to cause you to be witnesses as he, as he bears witness to me. Look what John does over in his first epistle, 1 John, how he starts. We'll pick up in verse 1. Let's think about apostolic community that is the church. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you. We've been with him from the beginning. So that too, so that you too may have fellowship, koinonia, with us, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now, you remember probably in the Upper Room Discourse, chapter 15 of John, Jesus says, I'm telling you these things so that you may share in my joy and that your joy may be complete. John's picking up on that very thing. I want my joy to be complete and you coming into this apostolic fellowship where there is fellowship with the Father and the Son. We who have been with him from the beginning, the church, we're doing that. This is the apostolic fellowship, right? One of the things that the, that the Reformation wants to get at is um, the apostolic fellowship is, is the parameters of it are created by the proclamation of the word, right? And the giving of the sacraments, but the proclamation of the word it marks out um, the very identity and parameters and mission of the church in the world. She's, a, she's a, a, a creature and therefore a steward, right? Precisely as she stewards well, the living word of the living God, presence of Jesus. Now I want to say one thing before we press on, and it's this. If you guys know church history, we've had lots of councils about things, right? Trinity, incarnation, lots of things. When was the council about the canonical collection, what constitutes Holy Scripture? When was the council of that? There never was one. There never was one. The church never said, um, 
we are determining here the word of God. Now think about what that meant. Well, there's lots of, you know, pseudepigraphies, lots of would-be gospels flying around, right, of the empire and the church in this long obedience, long obedience, by the way, without really good ways to communicate, right? No, no internet, no email, none of those things. Um, under a whole lot of pressure, the church hears and listens and listens and listens, and then the church says, these are, right, in terms of the New Testament, let's say the apostolic preaching, these are the 27 writings that constitute Holy Scripture. The church says that without ever needing a council. I think that's a miracle. It's an absolute miracle. And Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholics and Protestants, right, historic Protestants, all together with one voice say, we have heard the word of God and we've never needed to determine, per se, the word of God. We've all recognized the word of God. It's just stunning, it's stunning. It's a first order miracle. Um, that is part of the reformers um, argument, right? That we recognize scripture. We do that, we never need to determine. So my question to you as we push on a little bit, could it be, or to what extent, we wanna think about this, is it that we, moderns, modern Christians, evangelical Christians, sometimes operate, if not self-consciously, if not formally, not even necessarily trying to do this, unwittingly at least, act very similar to the very thing that we would protest against in saying we determine scripture rather than recognize it. Is there, are there ways in which we do that? Do you guys think that would be the case? bad things to us. <laughs> yeah. It would be to say, yeah, sometimes like we have passages of scripture that we just don't read and don't like to read. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or even, even, you know, some of the ways we do apologetics, even going into the world and arguing about scripture so much differently than what we would see Paul doing, right? I come to you in weakness and in the proclamation and the demonstration of, of, of spiritual power, you've come to see the reality of Jesus Christ and, and you've, you know, affirmed my apostolic ministry. What we'll tend to do is kind of subtly switch that around. We'll go into the world arguing to substantiate scripture so that it's okay for you to believe in Jesus. Something really, really different. I think that you see that quite a lot in modern. So let's think about that a little bit. As we think about the authority of scripture, I'm on page two of your notes. The reformers insisted that the church cannot confer authority on scripture. In this sense, conferred authority would be an oxymoron, right? Can't confer authority on scripture but recognize the authority of scripture in recognizing the living voice of Jesus Christ. So the church doesn't stand in judgment of scripture uh, as an authority over scripture, but rather receives, joyfully acknowledges the scripture whose self-authenticatingness, let's say, self-authenticating realities are like the colors and shapes and tastes of objects 
Listen to this. Think about this quote from Calvin. I have it right here for you. It's that second little paragraph on page two of your notes. He says this. As to the question, how can we be assured that Scripture sprung from God unless we have recourse to the decree of the church, right? He's talking over and about uh, a late medieval church that would say we are the, the, the Lord of Scripture. It is, as if, it is as if someone asks, he says, whence will we learn to distinguish light from darkness, white from black, sweet from bitter? Scripture exhibits fully as clear evidence of its own truth as white and black things do of their color as sweet and bitter things do of their taste. Calvin says it's actually by tasting and entering in that we actually learn to acknowledge these things rather than, right, at distance, um, dissecting, deconstructing, you know, endless deliberation about things. He said, which in, in theologically speaking can never, ever, ever get you to the truth of a thing, can never do it. He says it's actually by putting it on your tongue that you know, you, none, none of us needs to be told, right? By the way, if you have a pile of salt and a pile of sugar on the table, they're really hard to deliberate, right? We could end, do endless debate about which one is which until you take a dab and put it on your tongue and you tell right away. Calvin says, that is the way we go about doing these things. Calvin maintains that there's a conviction whose self-authenticating nature we can only truly know by entering in, by tasting, by seeing, by hearing and living, right? By the word of God. When the spirit vivifies scripture, illumines scripture in our hearts to the end that Jesus Christ is presented and we are together fused with Jesus Christ in union with him. From there on, right, we know who's embraced us and who we've embraced. We know that, he says. Think about that with respect to your own Christian life. We'll go there in just a minute, but let me say this. Calvin, right, according to him, scripture authenticates itself in through that, script, in and through, I'm sorry, authenticates itself in that through scripture, we're brought to faith in the Lord of whom scripture speaks, and in that scripture, he is authenticating himself. Jesus Christ authenticate, authenticates himself by the power of the spirit, and so that witness that bears witness to him is authenticated in that process. Let's just unpack this for a little while. How many of you guys came to be believers when you were little kids, maybe even prior to being good readers? When you started to read well and you got your first Bible, let's say, did you say, okay, that changes everything now? Uh, I gotta go back to scratch. Or did you receive the word of God? Like, yay, right, this is the word of God. What ends that for us? I was an adult convert, so that was not my, um, my experience. But what ends that, and you guys know that, but, 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 what ends that for people? It's not slick arguments about the Word of God, um, about Scripture and the, the authoritative nature of Scripture. It's actually being acquainted with the Lord Jesus Christ. To be acquainted with the Lord Jesus Christ means that we receive, right? Hearing Him means that we, we receive that witness about Him. Does that make sense? And our experience might be something a little bit different than that. We might think, and again, this would be my experience. Are there any of you adult converts or young adult converts? Kate, I know you are. You guys are all children of the church. It's a blessed thing to be. Um, I did lots of reading and thinking and deliberating. And one day I said, I want to be a Christian, <laughs> right? 
Um, so the order of my experience might be something like, you know, I thought hard, I talked to people, I read, um, and I concluded that Jesus was the Christ. That's the order of experience, and it is. But the theological order is a little bit different. We go actually from Christ to Scripture, right? Along the way, uh, I was seized by the living Jesus Christ, and his word became alive to me and became trustworthy to me. Um, the order of our, the theological order there tells us what our experience is. And it is always, by the way, Christ to Scripture. It is always that at the end of the day. We come to love, embrace, recognize Scripture as Word of God, as in the power of the Spirit we're acquainted with Jesus Christ. Right? And that's how the church wants to steward Holy Scripture. It's important that we do. Precisely because God gives himself, God himself speaks in Scripture, we do not deduce or infer or conclude God from the printed page. In other words, Scripture is not the mediator. How many mediators is there between God and humanity? It can't be Scripture. When we think, when we think like that, when we think that we're, that, we're, that we're moving from Scripture to Christ, what we're actually doing is there's one mediator between Jesus Christ and us, and it's Scripture. That's actually not the case at all. He speaks immediately in Scripture. Scripture's not a mediator. For the Reformers, like the prophets before them, an inferred deduce God is an idol. Any God that you have to infer or deduce is by definition an idol because any God that you have to infer or deduce is a God who does not speak and doesn't act. You have to infer or deduce a Yeti or Bigfoot, right? Um, but a God who is present and lives and speaks and acts, you learn to hear and acknowledge and trust and obey, but not infer or conclude. It's a categorically different thing. Any God you have to deduce or infer is a God who is utterly altogether not the triumph God of the gospel. That's why you never see prophets and apostles arguing for the existence of God, and you all the time see moderns doing that, right? The God who lives and speaks and acts is the God you don't have to do that to. He's, he's not, a, he's not a, a concept or an idea. We're not trying to sell a concept or an idea. We're trying to bear forth the word of God. What do you guys think? Tell me, Matt. What you thinking? By your statement about um, people in the Bible never argue about the existence of God, but we always do. We so, always do. Yeah. So what, this, this is what I mean. Um, um, with what I was asking, do sometimes modern Christians do that very thing? We do. I think the Great Commission for us seems like, now go into the world arguing. Go into the world and argue about everything having to do with God. And it's, it's a really bad idea, and it's a really fruitless idea, right? Go into the world proclaiming, <laughs> and the Lord does that heavy work. So I was actually wondering how do you, because I know you teach apologetics, how do you go about teaching apologetics mm. with that? One of the things I do is I go through all types of apologetic methodologies and things like that because it's good to have tools in your toolbox. It's really good. I think Beck probably took, did you take apologetics with me? So one of the things, for instance, right, um, we talk about, say, theological proofs and things like that. So you argue from the existence of the world. 
And we explore those, you know, what would make a Christian do that? So we can say, you know, can, can you come to know God in the world? Does God give himself, reveal himself, and actually communicate himself through physical things? He does. But it, it's quite a different thing to say that <clears throat> we look at the world and conclude God from it, right? By the way, historically, that's just a basket case because, I mean, that's Paul's argument in Romans 1, right? To be exposed to the handiwork of God makes you conclude Zeus and Ra and Odin and Thor and all kinds of stuff. Not, not the triune God of the gospel. He's not known that way. So what we're actually doing in that, in that prospect is saying creation is so intelligible because we can touch it and we can handle it. It's so intelligible um, that what it actually does is it makes a God who isn't intelligible intelligible. And it's the ground of, of knowing of God. It's quite the other way around, right? Creation needs a revelation as to, what, as to what it is. So that's one of the ways in which the church, I think, really subtly learns to undermine the gospel when she forgets what, what the proclamation is, what witness is. And you, then you start going out into the world talking in ways that are quite unfruitful. Does that make sense? Quite unfruitful. It saps our strength. By the way, Nietzsche, right? Not a Christian. But Nietzsche would say, looking at the church in his day, is the gospel an argument, right? He's looking at the church and saying, why, you know, you doth protest too much, right? You're constantly arguing about the existence of God in ways that makes me think you're a forlorn lover, right? You're not, maybe you're not quite so sure that God exists, but that's not the way prophets and apostles do it. They never, never, never do that. <clears throat> it's one of the big points of the Reformation, right? one of the big ways in which we handle scripture. Um, now, Kelvin's point right at the bottom here, page two, anytime the church will elevate herself above the primacy and the normativity of scripture, what she actually is doing is she's contradicting the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Just contradicting the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And in so doing that, she's dishonoring him, right? And as she does that, she contradicts the, the, the authoritative nature of her own ministry. In other words, she gets really timid and really, really afraid in the world. Does that make sense to you guys? I think, I think it's easy to see how we're that way. And if you, if you guys ever noticed, it isn't that Scripture doesn't say enough often. All the things that we really struggle with is because Scripture says way more than we wish Scripture would say. <laughs> and we're, we're, we're backpedaling. We're not, we're not like groping around in the, in the fog, we're actually saying, oh gosh, I wish scripture didn't say that. And then we, then we kind of go into the world apologizing, like, hey, I have some really bad news for you, right? Rather than, um, if there's really good news, you guys know, right? It's the elephant in the room. We talk about things like um, all sorts of the, the sexuality stew that we're in, right? Is this good news to the world? It's really good news. God says way more there. Scripture says way more than we wish Scripture would say sometimes. Now, to bring this to bear upon the world, right, as the ongoing, living, acting voice of the Lord Jesus Christ, right, this is how we steward our calling, right? And the church is really actually has an authoritative word to say. It doesn't come from her. It's not hers. Because it's not hers, she has no power to change it. She has no power to not speak it, right? She has no right not to do that, to push, to put that under a bushel. 
<clears throat> but as she does it, she can do it in the confidence that this is like really, really good news and life-transforming gospel witness, right? So she doesn't have to, she doesn't have to lord herself over scripture in these ways. She can just actually, uh, as, a, as, a, as a creature and a custodian of the word with all kinds of due confidence and cheer, preach the gospel. But if she, if she takes that kind of posture of lordship, she gets really timid in the world. Really, really timid. Do you guys sense that? I'm, I'm glad I'm not the only one, because I, 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 I'm, I'm with, you know, to, I do lots of ministry, and, and I see a lot of that, just like a real shrinking back from the world, a real timidity. One of the reasons, there's lots, but one of the reasons is that for about 80, no more than that, a good, a good century, we've, we've undertaken what we call like the battle for the Bible, right? Um, and what we've done, even well-intended people, is we're constantly trying to prove and vindicate the Bible on our own wiles. It's an incredibly bad idea, right? What it actually does is it inculcates a Cartesian doubt, um, all of it rooted in, you know, this, this ministry that we've betaken unto ourselves that we actually authenticate and prove scripture. It makes it real hard to listen to scripture. Let's talk about the self-authenticating nature of scripture. <clears throat> I'm, on top, I'm on the top of page three. That scripture is self-authenticating has historically been an important aspect of Christian experience, but ministry, think about ministry, right? Ministry in the church, how the church handles scripture. Calvin again. I give you Calvin just because he's so representative of um, that evangelical element of our Anglican heritage, and he's just wonderful here. He provides a really, really cool um, and well-developed apologetic for Scripture. One of the things he wants to do, or one of the things he does, let's say this, and if, if you're ever reading Calvin, it's book one, seven and eight, chapter seven. Becca, you took Calvin. You saw that before. Um, he spends a whole lot of time saying, look, look at the ways in which we can see the, the majesty of Scripture, right? You have, you know, several authors, 40 authors, right, over oh, centuries and centuries. One really incredibly um, unified message. You see the majesty of Scripture, the coherency of Scripture, the, the fulfillment of uh, prophecies in Scripture, the wonderful preservation of Scripture, so on and so forth, right? That um, the apostles would die and the prophets would die for Scripture, right? That the martyrs would die for Scripture, so, so um, beholden to the Word as they were. All of those things. He says, all of these things are true and they're wonderful. And then he goes on to say this. I'm quoting right here from the page three, top third. He says, There's, there are many other reasons, neither few nor weak, for which the dignity and the majesty of Scripture are not only affirmed in godly hearts, but brilliantly vindicated against the wiles of those who would disparage Scripture, yet of themselves. These aren't strong enough to provide a firm faith, unless our Heavenly Father, revealing His majesty there in Scripture, lifts reverence for Scripture beyond the realm of controversy. So think about that in your own life. What's, what's lifted Scripture beyond the, the realm of controversy for you? So that you can actually be childlike, right? truly childlike. Therefore, Scripture will ultimately suffice for a saving knowledge of God only when its certainty 
is founded upon the inward persuasion of the Spirit. So this, one of the Spirit's ministries is to assure you that you're children of God, right? The Spirit bears witness to your spirit. The Spirit bears witness also to your spirit that you've heard the Word of God. So it's the Spirit's testifying ministry. It's the inner testimony of the Spirit. Upon the inward persuasion of the Spirit, indeed, these human testimonies which exists to confirm it will not be in vain. Hear that. They're not in vain. It's, it's not that they're not, they don't have a place and they're not good. But he says, if as secondary aids to our feebleness, they follow that chief and highest testimony, testimony of the Spirit. But those who wish to prove to unbelievers that Scripture is the Word of God are acting foolishly, Calvin says. Now, that's not just a, that's not just like a slight. It's got theological substance to it. What does the fool say in his heart? In Psalm 14, there's no God. Um, Calvin's point is those who talk like that about, about Scripture's own authenticating reality, they act as if there's no God, right? This is, this is the ministry of our Lord to do this. They're acting foolishly for only by faith can these things be known? Calvin's point, in the life of the church, right, in the exercise, uh, in the confident exercise of ministry, Jesus Christ speaks in and through Scripture, binds us to himself, and teaches us how to hear his living voice, to which the Spirit bears witness. Um, there's no substitute or alternative for that. <laughs> Right? That is the thing. To whatever extent um, the church wants to act, you know, in, in, in effect, undermine that, right? Even with good intent, often with a sense of bolstering that. What, what actually happens is we squelch our own confidence in Word of God. And we start to be really, really, really filled with anxiety and fear about doing the ministry of the Word of God. But Calvin says, the self-authenticating nature of Scripture is such that it exists in a theological metric, right? With the Lord Jesus Christ, with, Holy Script, with the Holy Spirit in the, in the realm of the church, such that we do not need to lord over Scripture. To the extent we do, we're doing a, we're doing a piece of denial against those things. Does that make sense to you? What do you how, does that, how does that strike you? We talk a lot about a revival of word and sacrament, right? This would be just basic to that. What would it take for there to be a revival of the word, scripture? Um, what would it take for us to really be people who fall deeply, deeply passionately in love with the Bible, have a love affair with the Bible, uh, and learn how to, because um, you, you guys know, whatever, whatever it is you love, you just can't stop talking about it, right? Whether it's a, you know, cheeseburger, whatever. You, you guys know, we just, we just bear witness to the things we love. What, what would it take for the church to have a revival of the word so that we become cheerful, confident proclaimers of the word? Calvin's point is something like this, right? And that's one of the reasons, you, you guys know the Reformation, right? It's just an explosion of um, scripture and exegesis and preaching. And so Luther would say something like, you know, you guys know Luther. 
we sat in Wittenberg, Philip Melanchthon and Nicholas Holmsdorf and me, we just sat in, we sat in Wittenberg and swilled our beer and the word of God did this. <laughs> we just we preached the word of God and Christendom as it were convulsed when this happened. You could say quite the same thing about what happened with Bonhoeffer and, and Bart and people like that. De Romer brief comes out in 1919. Christendom convulses, right? Um, an unleashing of the word of God. Let me give you a, an example from, uh, you guys know Charles Spurgeon, right? Spurgeon does ministry at the, you know, the height of the, the Enlightenment, just gutted the church in England, just gutted it. And it's, it's just on a moralistic project and it's dead. And here comes Spurgeon, right? 40,000 people are packing Metropolitan Tabernacle. 40,000 people right in the heart of London. Uh, and people are asking, you know, what, what's the secret sauce, right? What are you doing? What's the technique? What's the method? There's got to be some methodology, right? There's no methodology. He says, I'm preaching the gospel and all the beauty and glory of the gospel. And uh, our Lord is doing just what he promises to do. If I be lifted up, right, I will draw people to myself. But Spurgeon goes on to talk about, uh, he, the way he talks about it is the tiger, right? Spurgeon's tiger, he says something like this. We could go on a field trip, let's say, down to the Lincoln Zoo. I don't know if Lincoln Zoo have tigers or not, but they have to for this, so they do. Um, and we could walk around a cage, and the question would be, right, for a Gregory House event, um, are tigers fierce, and should they be feared? And we could walk around, and we could ask questions like, well, what's the anatomy of a tiger? You know, why do they have eyes right in the front of their head like predators, right, and over here? If you have eyes here, things eat you. If you have eyes here, you eat things. Um, you know, look at their claws, look at their, you know, so on and so forth. Could we get testimonies of people who were attacked by tigers? Could we do all of those things? The answer is yes, right? And we could walk around that cage for hours and hours, and at the end of the day, we'd say, huh, that's interesting. All right, anyway, let's go home. Spurgeon says, or we could do this. It would be much more effective, right? He said we could go over to the cage and we could go click and let the tiger out of the cage. And then the tiger would convince us of its own character really, really quickly and really memorably, right? You would not forget that. His point is that, preach the word, right? Um, what, we've, what we've done is we've gotten into the habit of talking about the Bible as the word of God. And we've become really, really, really slow and embarrassed even to, um, entrust ourselves to Holy Scripture as an act of entrusting ourselves to the one whose voice we hear there and really slow to proclaim Scripture, except for in Christian circles. Does that make sense? Spurgeon's point is, preach the Word and you just watch what happens <laughs> because the, the power and the efficacy and the dynamacy is not yours. It belongs, it belongs to Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit. And that is the gift of, that is gifted to the church and then the gift of the church, right, even to the world, is to proclaim and herald Holy Scripture. Talk with me then. You see the point to ponder there on page three. Why is it? Why is it that we tend to, um, if that is the case, I would suggest that it is, why is it that we, modern evangelicals, that's what I'm talking about, us, tend to operate in a manner that's seemingly opposed to the way Calvin, Spurgeon, talk about Scripture? 
is it that we have come to the habit of habitually trying to authenticate, legitimate, verify Holy Scripture and become out of practice? I'm not saying you, I'm not saying that, but um, as, a, as, a, as a church, as a Christian culture in our culture, come out of practice of joyfully hearing the Word of God and then joyfully speaking the Word of God, even in the hard places of life. Would you, would you grant me that, that that is the case? Or do you think that's the case? If you do, what do you, what do you think's at play there? I wanna learn from you, by the way. You guys, are, you guys have less years on you than me. And so generationally even, like what do you think's at play there? Beck, you're a grad student in theology. Close enough. Yeah, Caleb. Um, I was thinking about it. One of the reasons that I wonder why that tends to be um, kind of the modern evangelical response is when I look back at just like the, the era of the church that I remember as a young kid, the hot button topics were Darwinism, evolution, like these scientific things that seem to contradict scripture. And so the reactionary response to that was, well, we're going to scientifically prove to you that, you know, Scripture is accurate here, right? Um, and I'm sure it was going on long before that, but when I think of that, like, that was the discussions going on in my church and um, that my parents had books about and all these different things. So I was wondering if maybe that kind of scientific way of approaching things has affected and therefore lessened the the, the understanding of the power that's in the Word of God preached um, in some form. I don't know. I think that might be one aspect of it. Mm -hmm. well, can we say something? There's a lot to say there, obviously. Um, and some, sometimes, right, what we do is we, we kind of move back. We say, oh, that area's been seated. We can't really speak to that, so we'll move back. And that wasn't really about, it's not about salvation anyway. So we'll just move back to a different place. So that's not about the gospel. We'll move back. Pretty soon you ask, like, so, like, what does the gospel speak to, <laughs> right, rather than the whole of life? Um, nothing. Um, <clears throat> but what's happened is we, we, don't have, we don't have much of a robust theology even of Scripture, right? That's one of the reasons I want to do this. And so what we tend to do is, is we, we just subject Scripture to any other type of methodology that's out there. And then we just jump into the kind of the, the, the place that discourse is where that might be a really bad really, really bad place to jump in because by doing that, you've already, you've seeded so much, right? Um, yeah. And what else? Do you guys want to follow up on that? Speak to it. I'd love to discuss that with you because I think it has everything to do with, oh, you guys are going to do evangelism next week. Um, does a robust theology of Scripture um, where you can speak a, a living word of God there. You know, does it, does it inform the church's evangelistic endeavors or, in, or in evangelistic mission? I'm just going to stare at you until you talk to me. 
was thinking about as you were talking was just that that idea of certainty and I feel like a lot of even Christians want to have that sense of certainty about what they believe and so they search different methodologies like you were talking about to try and feel that certainty when they approach scripture rather than like the illustration of the tiger that you gave like the certainty of knowing that it's powerful through experiencing it mm-hmm. um, and I think that's I don't know, I think that's how I grew up was kind of like the certainty came from outside things rather than letting the certainty of the experience uh, convince me. The experience of Christ, you know, encountering me through the word. So, so one of the things that we hope we can do as a church and theologically is we, we want to engage other forms of creaturely wisdom, right? So we're talking about CRT, for instance, right? So we want to be able to do that. We want to be able to engage, um, let's say, science, which is a gift of God, right? A real gift of God. Scientism isn't, right? Kind of a denatured understanding of science, which, which it's a bigger conversation. It's a conversation for apologetics, but um, that seeks to um, tell us that not only can it, can it be an exercise of um, understanding um, descriptively phenomenon, but it tries to then be prescriptive and get to, you know, the meaning of things, but it can't do that. It actually can't do that as a discipline. But if we don't get a theology of scripture, the church, we won't even, we won't be able to engage other forms of creaturely wisdom. We'll either, right, we'll run from them, we'll retract from them, or we'll just be conformed to and assimilate to them. Maybe even just at the level of methodology, right? So what we do is, this, this is, this is the Bible. Um, how can we tell that the Bible is the Bible relative to the canon that we've put up against it, which it is psychology, sociology, history, um, modern scientific methodology, so on and so forth. If it can pass muster by these, which are in effect the Lord of it, then we can say it's okay to believe in Jesus. But until we can, until we, can we can't. Um, all of that has become really, really troublesome in the life of the church, for sure. Can Jesus speak a lordly word to these things, right? Even as we can appreciate them and critically uh, engage them and say, gosh, I can learn so much there, right? And I can, I can affirm and, and be fortified in so many ways. But I'm never doing that um, unclear as to who the Lord is and how the Lord speaks, right? Becca, you keep smiling like you want to say something. I still want you to. The era of the, the COVID mask has crushed conversation. <laughs> Have you guys noticed? How does, it, how does this strike you? What's being, said, what's being said here? Theology of scripture in connection with son, spirit, in the life of the church, Jesus Christ, present, living, uh, the church being the church being authoritative. The church is really the church has an authoritative word, not only as we as living members of the church for us to hear, but the church can actually speak authoritatively in the public square. Given that all authority in heaven and earth is given unto me, and we don't worship a provincial deity. Imagine that, right? We can't actually we can't actually say repent and believe the gospel in the world unless that's the truth. Jesus Christ isn't a provincial Lord. 
public public proclamation. Public proclamation depends on us um, grasping this. Matt? Um, yeah, I just, I think what one of the things that struck me in your lecture uh, about the veracity of scripture um, is how much the reformers appeal to experience um, and that that you will know the truth of scripture by experiencing the truth of scripture. That's just interesting to me because it sounds I could I could hear a critique of that being like well that's that's really subjective, um, but in point of fact that's how we come to know Jesus is uh, not through an argument not through our minds but through a an encounter through a, a relational connection yeah um, with Jesus. That's a great point. You and I have talked about that in the coffee shop. I mean it's. What modernity has done is it's taken objectivity and subjectivity and, and made, it, made it dichotomous. It's, it's dichotomized those two things. And so what that does for us is we say, well, the Bible is objectively true. Yes, of course. You can say whatever you, whatever you can say all kinds of things about Scripture. Um, if, it's, if it's you ridiculing Scripture, that's more autobiographical than anything, and, and your ridicule doesn't change a thing. This is Word of God. But what we, what we tend to do when we just think that objectivity is the way we get at stuff, it makes us stand back from this, and now we're back in the place of Lord that is trying to um, endlessly deconstruct and deliberate about things. So part of, part of getting at the objective reality of Scripture is to subjectively own it, right? Live into that reality. Uh, we're not going to get to it, and that's okay, but when we talk about clarity of Scripture here, I leave it for you. Jesus says in John 7, I think I mentioned that last week, it's awesome. He says to the, to the Pharisees, if you want to know if my word is from my Father, follow me. You have to follow me. If you won't follow me, you cannot know, right? Because knowledge, knowledge of God is had in faith and discipleship, or just not had at all. You cannot get it by deliberation, no matter how bright that deliberation. And it can, be, it can be brilliant, by the way. It's one of the reasons, like Soren Kierkegaard, if you read him, he says truth is, is pure subjectivity. He doesn't mean pure relativity. He doesn't mean that. But he means that the objective truth of God is known in the subjective appropriation, right, in discipleship. You see it up at the table. The gifts of God for the people of God. Come and taste and see that the Lord is good. How will you know? By tasting and seeing. Now, if you ever went up, you know, if I come, if, if I come and say, you know, uh, come to give you the Lord's Supper, and you say, just put it, drop it in this baggie, because I'm going to take it to the lab and see if I can find human DNA in there or something like that. That, that isn't the way we come to know these things, right? You come to know in the tasting and seeing. What's true of that sacramental reality, where, where the, the, the ongoing efficacy of Christ dying and rising is made present, same thing here. The ongoing living voice of Jesus Christ in the life of the church, the same thing is true there. It's by hearing. It's by, by the way, it's by obeying that we know. Can't know unless you're ready and willing to hear and to obey. And scripture becomes clear to us. Yeah. Actually, I feel like that's a that's more compelling um, nowadays, at least among 
if I if I have this correct, I feel like my, my impression of my own generation and and the others that are following are um, that it's just more compelling to, to talk about the way that you've experienced the Lord in Scripture than it is to say like if you want to come and follow Jesus, let me walk you through these arguments for why you should consider this. Um, as I'm looking at like this this. Uh, error that modern evangelicals have made in trying to justify the veracity of Scripture rather than allowing Scripture to justify itself. Um, I, I feel like that approach has lost its salience. Um, it's at least not those sorts of questions are not the questions, questions about the historicity of the Gospels or, um, you know, I don't know the scientific questions about science and the Bible aren't really the questions that are coming up in Res Youth, for example. They aren't, you said. Aren't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I wholly agree, and I know you're this way too, Matt. Like I love those conversations. I love them, um, but they're not the thing. They're they're never the ground for the thing. Um, you know, in teaching, for instance, I've I've seen a couple of things. Uh, I had a student in apologetics say to me, yeah, it's a couple of years ago, you know, when, in, you know, she was a youth minister. When we give Bibles to kids in the second grade or so, the church will give a Bible to a child. And then for the next five weeks, we have five courses that tell students why the Bible is the word of God. They're little apologetics for seven-year-olds. And I, I just said, that's okay. Um, do kids ask those questions? She said, no, they never do. Maybe you address those questions as they come up, but you don't make them part of your curriculum because they're not asking those questions. It's actually um, not normative for the child of God to ask those questions. So you should probably not catechize them too because we're very catechized to ask certain kinds of questions, right? Don't catechize them to ask those questions. Just proclaim and all in, in joy and confidence the word of God and that's what happens. But another thing I've seen, and it gets at this, you guys can look at this at you guys can look at this at your own. Maybe we'll get at it for a few minutes. The clarity of Scripture. How does, how, does, how does Scripture talk about itself in terms of its own clarity? And when does Scripture become real unclear? And when it does, when do we feel like we need to argue for it? I've seen this as a professor a lot. Case in point, this type of thing. A student will come and say, uh, I'm having a really, really hard time believing that the Bible is the Word of God. And after you have those conversations for a while, usually what's that? That's the presenting question, right? Like three levels down, the real question is, um, what do I do about my porn addiction? Something like that. That's the real thing. The issue is I've, I've turned down the volume so long, so repeatedly over the years, I can't get it to turn up anymore. Does that make sense? So I, I haven't heard and I haven't obeyed and I haven't followed. And what's happened is, I can't hear God anymore. Now I'm not so sure that the Bible's the word of God. Does that make sense? Or these, you'll, you'll see it in ministry all the time. I stopped believing in the Bible at the same time I started having an affair. Those, those things often happen together. And the issue is, in order to hear the word of God, well, the posture of that, right? There's a theology of hearing the word of God. It's discipleship. It's obedience. We don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. 
says our Lord, right? And so what is it? He is hearing the word of the Father in the wilderness, right? In a hard place. He's hearing the word of the Father there. Um, as we hear the word of God and obey the word, live by the word in the hard places of life, the word we see that the word is mighty to the extent that we won't, then we start to have real, real questions about that. Does that make sense? Do we go till 10.30? I think that's right. Let me, let me just say this real quickly about a, a, a theology in the life of the church, about the clarity of Scripture, right? The perspicuity of Scripture. I have lots of stuff here just about historical things. You can look at it there. But what I, the point I want to make real quickly is, I hope you'll look at this later, um, the way that, that Scripture speaks of Scripture is that Scripture is given to common folk, right? I give you a couple texts up here, Deuteronomy 6, right? Talk about these things, the things of the, things of the Lord, the things of the Torah, this is Deuteronomy, as you're walking by the way and as you're rising up and lying down and so on and so forth, just have the, have the word of God just resonating in your life as a, a normal part of your life or the way the Psalms goes, right? Your word is like a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. It makes wise the simple, right? Simple people does that. The way that our Lord Jesus uses scripture, he, he is engaging common folk all the time with the realities of God. He's never suggesting um, you're, you're, you're kind of modest, and by the way, you don't even have a you don't even have a graduate degree, so there's no way you could understand scripture. He's never doing that. The assumption is is that the word of God's given for the people of God, so that they might live. Now, our Lord does tell people; He chides them. In fact, it's embarrassing. He does chide people for being dull. <laughs> And, and ignorant and unlearned and all of those things. And you know who it always is? It's ironically people you wouldn't think, right? Nicodemus, right? He comes to the Lord. He says, how can this be? It's a great question. It's the same question that Mary asks, right? Um, the spirit of God will overshadow you and you'll be with child and you'll call him Jesus. How can this be? She's not asking for a, you know, a, 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 a quick review of, procreative biology. She knows. How can this be? Be it unto me according to your word. She's lionized for that. Nicodemus, leader of the Jews, uh, teacher of the Jews, as scripture calls him, um, he says, how can this be? And Jesus says, gosh, how can you be so dull? How can you possibly be so unlearned as you are? I'm having a hard time talking to you. You'll see that in several different places. It's learned, folks. It's, it's learning that goes to seed. Jesus says, goodness gracious. Scripture is um, clear in the sense that it's given for the people of God that they might live and, and common folk, right? By the way, not to be read outside the church as a substitute for the church. You get it, but it's part of our discipleship. Does it mean scripture's easy? It means God wants us to wrestle with it and all of these things. But one of the, th as you look at this, because we're, we're gonna be done and we're gonna wrap up, but I want you to see over on page five, I just give you some text to look at and think about. Um, those who are willing to hear and obey, trust and follow God to those, the promise is that scripture will be a light unto your path, that scripture will actually acquaint you with the Lord 
and you will in the in the art of of hearing or, or, or listening you'll learn to hear you'll learn to do that and right here i give you several texts that that really speak to this um, how we're to listen in faith you know hear the word of god in faith um, that we're to um, grow up um, to become meat eaters, you know, solid food type of stuff. It's the book of Hebrews where the chide is, you should all be teachers now, but you're not. You haven't progressed past the basic things of God, but this is what you need to do so that you can do that. And you need to have your, your, your discernment constantly exercised by the practice of discerning good and evil. One of the things there is you need to hear and obey the word of God in really hard places in life. <laughs> And as you do, the volume gets turned up, right? The more you do, the easier it is to do that. As you don't, the volume gets turned down. So a, a doctrine of scriptures, perspicuity, clarity, efficacy in the life of the church is rooted in that posture of discipleship as well. Yeah. Um, as you're talking about like the clarity of scripture, I'm just thinking that, um, you know, as Matt just said, our generation maybe doesn't struggle with, you know, is the Bible scientifically accurate, but um, I think our generation does struggle with, like, the clarity of Scripture. I think because there's such desire to, like, validate everybody's experience, and yeah. um, I'm wondering how you would talk about the clarity of Scripture in contexts where, like, because this does happen where either two individuals or two communities can read the same passage and like come to the opposite conclusion of what God is saying to them through that. I mean, and I feel like our generation looks at that and says, well, who am I to say one is right over the other? Yeah. And um, is scripture clear? And, I mean, and in some ways we, we wouldn't, right? There's, there, there's discernment there in terms of, you know, think about like different denominations, which you'd say, you know, you might say some, they're, they're wonderful. There's things that you might not agree with and there's a, there's a differentiation of reading scripture there. But you, whereas you'd say, I'm, I'm Anglican, I'm in the ACNA for, for, with deep conviction because I think this is right. You wouldn't be so quick to say, and you're in horrible error and so on and so forth. But then there's issues of, <clears throat> this is where I think we struggle, um, clear things <laughs> where we've become really it's just part of our day. We will criticize authorities, all kinds of authorities, but we're really slow to critique our own narrative. We'll critique meta-narratives, but not our own. That becomes real sacrosanct. So what we've done is we've, we've kind of made our own personal narrative um, beyond critique and, and where it is critiqued. That's like an, an offense to our, our personhood or something like that. I think that's something we really, really better get over quickly, right? And there's, of course, like there's pastoral care in that, right? But take, for instance, I think this is the big one. If you guys have a bigger one, let me know. But it's, it's the sexuality thing. It's huge. This is a place where we are becoming really, really uh, afraid to proclaim good news here. And you have to do it with all kinds of pastoral care. And you can say, and, and ought, like, I don't want to, I don't want I don't need to critique your experience that you experience X, Y, or Z, all of these things. I would never deny that, but I would say this. 
that in those hard places, um, what we all need to do and do together is hear the Word of God, right? And, and taste and see that the Word of God is really good news, really good news here. Um, Christina, what I, I think what I see in my own ministry at Moody and things like that is, and this would, this would come in like areas of counseling and things like that, is a real reticence to ever speak biblical proclamation in, into spaces, let's say, where there's depression. Like a real clinical depression, like, like don't whatever you do, like, and the, the, the language is, you know, don't bludgeon people with the Bible. Of course, don't bludgeon people with the Bible. The, the Bible is not a hammer. The issue is, can the Word of God come in and bring release and bring good news and light and life into hard places in life? And to the extent, I think what we're doing in a lot of places is we're saying, don't speak scripture here. Don't speak scripture here. Don't, don't speak scripture here. And then the only place you can speak is when, when everyone's doing awesome and we're all shiny, happy people, right? And, and we're all people who aren't sick and don't need a physician, then you can speak scripture there. So I, th I think, what, you know, with all due, you know, care and concern, um, learning how to, to, to bring the word of God as good news into those really hard places. And by the way, that doesn't mean it'll be received as good news. But even where it's not received as good news, right? You let people be offended for all the right reasons. Not because not we use scripture, not because we weaponize it, use it as a hammer. But so the word of God is before us. And, and if we're gonna tussle and we're gonna fight and we're gonna object and reject, we're gonna, we're gonna reject and object the word of God. Because that's, that's part of a redemptive process too. Does that make sense? But I think that that's, if, if I'm reading our culture right, I think that that's something we really, really struggle with is we're really concerned to, to speak a word of God where we think that that might not be utterly welcome or contended, but boy, oh boy, that just does. <laughs> Beck, you're smiling. So it's so funny, the clarity question because I am in graduate school and I feel like that's where those questions come up and where we're so divisive over what the right reading is. But when I'm reading the Bible with my coworkers that don't know Christ yet, I personally am always getting in my own way because I think it ultimately comes down to like, do I actually believe that this is good news for the, my coworkers? Yeah. Um, and they're the ones that are like, Becca, stop talking. Let's keep reading. <laughs> and it's like they they know that this is good and what they need in their lives and it's me like getting in the way of mm -hmm. wondering if they want this or need this or will receive it. So you know some of this experience, right? I've done that same track as you, not at the same places. And I love it. I mean, gosh, it's just been invaluable to me. But someone like Kierkegaard, again, would say, you know, some, some of the best places to hide from God, he says, are graduate, degree, graduate programs in Bible and theology. Because if you're not careful, right, what you'll actually try to do is you'll try to master the Word of God so you never have to hear the Word of God. <laughs> right? And that, that can be subtle, right? So it's never that you're getting a master's degree. You're not mastering in exegesis, you're not mastering scripture in the process of learning and being a disciple, you're learning to be mastered. 
and the difference makes all the difference, right? Um, we got to be so careful with that, so so careful with that. But it is it is often the case, isn't it? We we protest too much, right? Like like Shakespeare says, you doth protest too much, um, to the extent that we fall out of love with our Lord, and and we ourselves are dubious of Him. Um, we'll go into the world arguing instead of proclaiming. We'll do that. All right, we got to go. You guys got to go. Um, I'm not going to be with you for a few weeks. Um, I can't remember when it is, but it's, I think, March or something like that. So, so bless you. Happy Advent. Merry Christmas.